Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I, as a general rule, I, I read a lot. My, my bad eyesight is probably proof of that. When I was 21, excuse me, when I was 24, I needed bifocals. Just proof of that. <laughs> and uh, generally, I read a lot of books, but I also read a lot of news. And I can tell you that over the past number of weeks, reading the news has become more and more painful for me, to the point where sometimes I don't even want to read the news. You know the point of avoiding reading it because it makes you feel worse? Now, I'm not talking about, in particular, the horrible news that came out of Israel yesterday, which was the murder of seven people on a Shabbat evening leaving a shul. The truth of the matter is we know what our enemies are going to do to us. And while it pains us, it doesn't surprise us. But in this morning's Torah portion, the, uh, the great Vizhnitz Rebbe, a Hasidic rabbi from Vizhnitz who lived in the 19th century, asked perhaps what is the most fundamental question surrounding the story. He asked, why did God actually want the Jews to leave Egypt? The fact of the matter is, is that their identities as Israelites was secured. On one hand, he said, you could probably make the argument that the condition of slavery in and of itself was unacceptable to God. But the fact of the matter is, on the other hand, we know that slavery as something of an institution wasn't abolished in the world. That even after the Israelites left Egypt and they constituted themselves as a nation in the land of Israel and all the other nations surrounding Israel at that time, slavery persisted. In other words, it didn't change the facts on the ground. The vision of Rebbe goes on to say that the reason why the Israelites were taken out of Egypt and subsequently why Egypt is mentioned over and over again in our prayers to the point where even the Torah, it says it is forbidden to Jew, for Jews to go back to Egypt is because God was afraid that we might become like Egyptians, that we might become cruel, we might become xenophobic, intolerant, that that fear was too much, that we would stop being who we were meant to be. What I want to do this morning in the few moments that I have on hand is I want to be an explainer. I want to tell you exactly what's happening in Israel to the best of my ability. I want to avoid to the best of my ability providing commentary, and I simply want to lay out to you what is, so to speak, at the doorway of dramatic, radical changes that are taking place in Israel. By way of self-declaration, uh, I lived in Israel from 86 to 92. I did the hat trick of Israeli experiences, as they say there, university, army, ordination. I, I find myself, I read voraciously the news in Israel, and so my love and commitment for the state of Israel is, I think, very close to the words that I speak, my actions that I undertake. But like any family that has problems, when you see a cousin or a brother or a sister or a loved one doing something insane, you can't sit by and say nothing. You have to talk. What began uh, a few months ago with the swearing in of the Israeli government was something that hitheretofore had never been seen. And that is within the shape of the Israeli government, some of the most critical and important ministries. And what would those be? 
They would be the Ministry of the Interior. It would be the Ministry of Defense. It would be the Ministry of Finance was placed into hands of people who had not only no military experience, they had never served in the army, but they were people who had not one, but multiple counts of criminal indictments against them. So you ask yourself, why would a government collectively organized install people who have been convicted criminals into some of the most powerful and influential and necessary ministries in the heart of a country that is under continual siege. Why would they do that? This government also undertook, as soon as it was sworn in, to undertake a radical series of judicial and legal changes to the system in Israel. Now, when you, and just for the record, you should understand that this government, while they are proud to announce that they have a overwhelming majority, you have to actually look at the numbers to realize that this government does not actually speak on behalf of an overwhelming majority of Israelis. They won control of the Knesset by less than 50% of the popular vote. They also won their control of the Knesset by less than 30,000 votes. What they plan to do with the judicial legal system in Israel sounds perhaps a little bit reasonable to us. And to be fair, the judicial system in Israel is in need of some tweaking and changing. There are problems that exist in how the judicial system functions in Israel, Questions about overreach, no question. So there are some changes that certainly could be undertaken, and it's been something that has been discussed for years and years and years. But the fact of the matter is what this government is trying to, to undertake should be profoundly alarming to people who live in countries like ours. I'll give you an example. In Canada, we have a charter. This is a written document. And what does the written document say? that there are certain rights and privileges that you are entitled to that nobody, no governing body, can ever, ever remove from your hands. The same thing, for example, in the United States. They have a constitution and a bill of rights. And so it is absolutely impossible that a government could enact laws that could be seen as legal and authoritative and legitimate if they counter, if they, if they are contradict those rights and privileges that are framed and protected in written documents. In Canada, like in England, we have multiple houses of government. For example, we have a, um, we have a parliament and we also have a Senate. And then there is also a Supreme Court. In the United States, they have the president who's also the chief executive. They have the House of Representatives. They have the Senate and they also have the Supreme Court. What do all these little things do? Not so little actually, but what do these things do? They create what is called in political theory, controls, or in other language, they call them checks and balances. What do checks and balances essentially do? They realize that amongst all the branches of government, there will always be tensions. There will always be an attempt by one branch of government to want to overreach and assert its authority on other areas of political life. So the tension is always there. 
But what you need are the checks and the balances so that there can be legitimate institutional pushback against those things. When a president tries to do things that are too, that are too, um, that are too aggressive, the Supreme Court and perhaps the Congress push, pushes back. If the Congress tries to do things that are too aggressive, the, the Supreme Court may, may rule it as being illegal. The president may veto it. In Canada, of course, because the prime minister is also the head of the ruling party, that they have to ultimately rely on the Senate and then the charter and the Supreme Court to say that what you have ruled to do is illegal. And the government, if it wants to maintain its legitimacy, will back down. So what are they thinking of doing in Israel? In Israel, they have no two houses of parliament. There is only the Knesset. There is no House of Lords. There is no Senate. There's nothing like that. Israel has no constitution. It has no charter. They have what they call this loose framework of what they call basic rights. And they try to draw it out from the Declaration of Independence that was penned by Ben-Gurion and others in 1948. That's what the country's essential laws are built on. Now what they're saying is, is that the, is that the Israeli Knesset can overturn a law that the Supreme Court has ruled illegal by a vote of majority of one. Of the 120-seat Knesset, 61 members of the Knesset can rule that the Supreme Court's ruling that something was illegal is legal. What's the problem with that? There are no checks and no balances, but even worse, the strength of a democracy is found not in the power of the majority, but the strength of a democracy is found in the ability of the institutions to prevent the terror of the majority. To protect the country and its citizens from a majority that may be trying to overexert its identity and its wishes. But these reforms go even deeper. The reforms are trying also that it is the government that will choose who sits on the Supreme Court and other judges. It is the government that will also choose who sits as the legal advisor, as the attorney general, that they can be political appointees. In other words, now you have an entire legal system that is there to serve not the interests of the citizens and the well-being of the democracy to provide checks and balances, but they become servants of the politicians. These are all very concerning things for people who love Israel, for people who care about the future of Israel. These are very concerning things. So let's go back to the beginning. Why would a government install in some of its most critical and essential ministries people who have been convicted of crimes and people who have not had any military service in a country where military service, for the most part, is mandatory, if not morally necessary. And a lot of this has to do with the person who they call both, both the pyromaniac and the fireman 
of Israeli political culture today, and that is the prime minister. His, um, his minister of the, of the, of the uh, law ministry came out and said it as much last week, that the whole reason why they have undertaken to change all of these laws is because of the criminal cases against Benjamin Netanyahu, who has three criminal cases being prosecuted against him. Allow me to say this. I'm going to end here because I simply want to explain what the circumstances are. The month of February, I think, is going to be a month that will um, reveal a great deal to us because apparently in the coming month of February, there's going to be a, a very, very distinctive, intense attempt at pushing through the first, second, and third readings by no later than April to enact these laws. You have all seen the videos of not tens or 20 or 30 or 70, but over 100,000 people gathering in Tel Aviv and now in other cities to protest. The legal system in Israel and the lawyers have taken throughout the week to uh, going on strike. Students have gone on strike. High-tech companies, two very large ones in particular, have begun to remove their foreign capital out of the country. The, bank, the head of the Bank of Israel told Bibi Netanyahu this week that he is already beginning to see the withdrawals of millions and millions of U.S. dollars. Israel cannot survive without economic prosperity. It simply cannot. Our hope, of course, is that Israel is a country that is populated by Jews. And the strength of Israel is because it is unlike any other country in the world. It can only continue to exist because of its civil and civic cohesion. People serve in the army and they go to reserve duty. The ethos of the country is built upon people cooperating with each other. It is a small country under siege. And so the weeks and few months ahead of us will be certainly critical and crucial. They will be significant and important. I have no doubt that I will have more to say in this. I hope it will be good things to say on it. But I think ultimately we will stay tuned. Shabbat shalom.